Welcome, friends, to the True Myth Media Podcast, a journey of film and faith. I'm your host, Michael McDonald. And I'm Seth Steele. And this week, we'll be sitting down with Virginia Anzengruber of the Listening at the Fire podcast and discussing Hook, a film she chose as especially meaningful to her. And after that, we'll be going through chapter three of Sculpting in Time by Andrei Tarkovsky. So I think we're just going to get right into our discussion with Virginia here. Yeah. Uh, discussing the movie Hook, which she chose as a, a movie that was especially spiritually meaningful for her. Yeah. So we'll go ahead and uh, sit down with Virginia here and uh, join you on the other side. All right. So uh, we're sitting here with Virginia Anzengruber. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me back. Welcome back. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, kind of a little background for people, I think. Uh, we asked you to maybe come up with some movie ideas, things that were like really important to you or yeah. uh, like really uh, formative. I think when you did the original request, you actually asked for movies that had a spiritual yes. impact on yes, me. That's and I immediately had a list that was like, I don't know if this is what you mean, but it immediately I had it evoked an, a, like a visceral reaction of a list from me. And these were the first two. So Heck yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so, we were kind of excited to get into these too. So it, I, you got some good picks here. Both of them Robin Williams movies too. Which again, I said this before we got on mic. Yeah. We were supposed to record this a little bit earlier. We both had life happened so we postponed and then today that we're recording this episode is actually the fifth anniversary of his death which yeah. is really oh that was rough for me yeah i remember where i was i remember what i was doing i remember how i felt it wasn't i was working in la on set and you kind of just pull up your phone and you're on facebook or whatever and i, I saw that and i just stopped breathing and then we all kind of were like did you and, and then we yeah. just kind of we took a moment of silence on set in the middle of filming. Yeah, because I thought it was I was like, this isn't real. That's not. Yeah, that's not real. And so I think it's a good way to honor him on the yeah. anniversary yeah. to be doing this. Well, he had a real ability to speak to children. Oh, yeah. Um, so there's I think and the for, child in adults. Yeah. Too. So yeah. like for a lot of us as we're growing up, like. Um, you know, there are some actors that are maybe like really, really great actors and really funny or whatever, but you don't see them as a kid because right. they're for adults. Right. And Robin Williams, you get to watch him your whole life until he passed. Now, I will say I did watch his stand up way too young. Yeah. <laughs> that is for adults. That is for adults. <laughs> but yeah, why don't we just get started? We're going to talk about the movie Hook. Yeah. Um, and I thought probably first you know kind of good question to get it out of the way is just like how you saw it the first time yeah if you even remember seeing it the first time so I remember it, I was a child and really my only I don't remember exactly how old I was but my main memory of it was that my grandmother had taped it off of HBO or something like that mm -hmm. so I still have the original VHS yeah. that on the VHS also has Brave Little Toaster Heck yeah. And an animated short called Ben and Me, which was about Benjamin Franklin and how really all of his inventions, including the bifocal, were assisted by a mouse friend of his, which <laughs> it, it was a, a that treat. That sounds great. Yeah. I, think I think I've seen like the cover of that before. It was, it was like, some of the art Honestly, it. It, it sounds really familiar. Good. I'm sure it's on YouTube. We should link it for the listeners because it was really great, but it doesn't get into any of his adultery or anything like that. So it, they kept it light, you know? Yeah. Well, it, that goes to... Like, we could probably do a whole episode about the movies that we watched that were on VHS tapes that were recorded. Yes. And, and there were certain movies that probably I've seen only because 
because they followed the movie that I liked. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, yeah. <laughs> you had to fast forward through the commercials yep. if you had grandparents yep. that didn't have cable. Yeah. Yep. No, so I, I still have that original VHS tape, and I, I must have been under 10, you know, I'm thinking that ballpark. And I just remember it was my, really one of my first concepts of, like, even Steven Spielberg kind of in a way because I had seen E.T. And I think maybe at that point I had probably seen Jurassic Park and things like that. But then this came about and there's a there's a divided community about this film because (laughs) a lot of people really think that it's like Steven Spielberg's worst film or whatever. It is so whimsical. It's so funny. It's so pure that seeing it and relating it to this person that I knew, you know, because I think when we were kids, the age that we grew up, we just knew Steven Spielberg was the director. Yeah. You know, and I might not have even See, known I don't what even, a director was. I don't even but... think I knew his name when oh, I saw these films. Okay. Really? See, I, I definitely Yeah, like when like, I saw even... Jurassic Park, I was I was not into film as an art form. Okay. So, like, I saw Jurassic Park and I was excited about it because it had dinosaurs in it. Right, yeah. yeah. I liked Hook because it was funny. Yeah. And because... And Robin yeah. Williams. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the Lost Boys. And, like, it's a, such a 90s movie. And I'm a 90s yeah. kid. So, like, mm-hmm. Rufio is, like, the coolest guy I could imagine. Yes. Oh. Um, like, yeah. growing up. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Dude, still. seriously. No, no, no. I know. You're too... You, you, you were not in my age group on yeah. this one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. And they, re- they redid a little scene from it recently, a couple years ago. And the actor that played Rufio, like, reprised his yeah, role. Yeah, I saw that. And I was just like, you're still cool. Good for you. Good for you. But now when you look at it as an adult, you're like, dude, that kid's not that cool. Well, so I will say, okay, so I did not need to rewatch this film in preparation for this podcast. Like I said to you guys, it's burned into all the story beats, all the characters, all the actors. It's all burned into my brain. I, I replay it in my eyelids sometimes. <laughs> and so, like, I I think when I watch it now, I almost, like, I get more emotional about it because yeah. it's the layers of, like, how much it felt like discovery when I was a kid. And then looking back at Rufio, mm-hmm. I'm like, he just needed a parent, you know? Yeah. He just needed somebody to tell him that he cared. And so the relationship <laughs> between him and you know, Peter Banning, Peter Pan, aka, yeah. mm-hmm. toward the end of the film to kind of have that big brother role in a way. I look at it now from almost like a sociological point of view where I'm like, he was just bullying because he didn't have anyone, you know, <laughs> and so like, and maybe Peter stopped the cycle for him, you know, just all this kind of stuff. And so it's, I, ugh, I just love it so much. <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely like a not, like, I can't be objective about it. Okay. Because I've seen it too much. Right. I, 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 it's too much a part of my childhood. Right. I know that a large part of why I love this film is nostalgia. Um, yeah, one of the questions you have is like silliest, worst moments. And I was like, none. It's a perfect film. <laughs> no, it is not. <laughs> it's a perfect film. <laughs> uh, I think even as a child, I, I wouldn't have called it a perfect film. But oh, I definitely – uh, this is like – Probably how I know uh, Robin Williams first. Okay. Um, also, Dustin Hoffman, uh, the first that I know of Julia him. Julia Roberts. Uh, I knew who Julia Roberts was, though, when I saw this movie. Pizza no, kid? I knew. Oh, okay. I just knew who she was. And to be honest, this is going to be a point of contention, I think. I can't stand her in this film. <gasps> what? 
Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I the the movie to me takes place like. I I usually go to the bathroom during her scenes. Um, is it because they added that like romantic element yes. to it? Okay, that's fair. It's that, yeah, and fair. she doesn't seem like vital to the plot. She doesn't seem to be doing anything that actually uh, moves Peter forward. And like, do you feel like the animated <laughs> Tinkerbell moved people? Peter I, forward? I I I think I've seen half of the original Peter Pan oh. at one point. Oh. So then that's interesting because if you don't have a context for the character of Tinkerbell yeah. fully, yeah. then I don't know if that's a – I mean, I'm not saying yeah, you the, can't have that opinion, obviously. No, the but film, like, the film it, as it is doesn't flesh her out very much. Well, so neither in the, the original – Neither the cartoon version Yeah, the cartoon either, version actually. didn't really either. She is basically just She's there a as fairy. a bug in his ear kind of yeah. just to like get him to go forward and she like, do She actually doesn't stuff. speak in yeah. the animated film. She so. just makes tink sounds. Oh, like, really? Tink, tink, yep. tink, tink. Yeah. Like oh, her feet make noises. and so the, and yeah. the, the sound effects that they give her are great, but she she mostly acts like like Seth said like as a consciousness almost, and then she provides fairy she's more dust like, so they can fly. Yeah, and she's more like Navi in the in the Zelda games. Like she's uh, yeah, just a bug in the ear yeah. saying like, "Look over here." Yeah, hey, exactly yes. like that. More yes, or less. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's an element to it where I almost, if I have a critique, now that you bring that up, I would say it's probably the scene where. She gets her wish and she becomes big yes. and she breaks out of her house and yeah. then all of a sudden it's my least favorite like part in of the love film with him and stuff. But at that point, he's already turned back into childlike Peter Pan. Yeah. yeah, and so really, what she's in love with is the projection of who she remembers him to be when they were younger, right? And so that yeah. I think is the distinction because she clearly continued to grow up. Yeah, physically, right? Because we're seeing like a full yeah. adult Julia mm. Roberts, but. It wasn't until he kind of makes that turn back into being Peter Pan in Neverland and has that. Mm-hmm. Then he, all of a sudden he's flying in his you know outfit again. That's when that all decides to happen, right? So she yeah. doesn't really make that revelation or that confession until that because he, to her, he wasn't the same person. He didn't remember yeah. who he was. So it was really interesting because that always kind of – I think that that was the adult – Yes. Hand in that film, right? It, yeah, it was because, like, that is lost on a child. That, exactly. like, that whole idea. And uh, it's kind of like, I know we've talked extensively about the movie Popeye on this sh- show um, because I love that film. Uh, but I, one of the things that we always, that we've talked about is where the movie succeeds is when it's being a cartoon, where the movie really fails the hardest is when it is trying to be a regular movie. Right. Like throwing right. character dynamics that just don't fit in the right, world right? Like, yeah. like nobody, yeah. nobody cares about like how Popeye feels like an orphan and has this lost sense of right. meaning and stuff like that. That that's get not... back to him chugging spinach cans, right? right. <laughs> like punching people in the face. Yeah. I, I feel like the same sort of thing is there in Hook, where it's like, okay, all of a sudden we're doing this other thing, right? Um, and that's not nearly as fun as what we were just doing. Well, oh, sorry, no, 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 I. No, I was just going to say, I feel like both of you guys were coming at this from a nostalgia uh, point of view, too. Yeah, so, like, coming at it from a perspective of, I think I've watched this once in my life before, yeah, and right. I remembered the marbles guy, and that's all I remembered. Oh, <laughs> um, yeah, that was the only part of this movie I remembered oh my God, at all. when he finds his marbles yeah. at the end, weeping. Uh, yeah, I was excited. I was like, hey, yeah, he found his marbles. And that was the only part of this movie I remembered uh, before I went back to it. So, it's yeah. the most important arc in the film. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Clearly, because that's... 
that's all I remembered as a kid. But um, I went into this kind of uh, blind again. And so, like, watching this for the first time as, like, an adult, like, I I felt like I understood who this was made for. And the entire time I was like, yeah, I get why there's so much love behind this movie. But I personally didn't feel it, I guess, as, uh, yeah. like, I was just like, man, this is really slow. Like, I think I took I took notes here. It took 31 minutes for Tinkerbell to actually show up. Yeah. And the, I was like, holy right. cow, the start that of first this movie is, is really nuts. slow. Like, yeah. yeah. Especially and, like, by modern standards. Yes. Like, well, and I think that's what it was. But I also, like, I understand the epicness of it, too. Like, yeah. I loved watching movies like that as a kid where it was like, we're going to set up this whole world and it's going to take a long time to get there. But then we're just going to live in this world. For yeah. me as an adult, I was just like, all right, this is taking way too long now. I think <laughs> like, it was really important for them story-wise to juxtapose Peter Banning with Peter Pan. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. So, like... The baseball who, scene at the, the beginning and stuff like that. The 90s video camera that the assistant brings. Yeah. Because, now, I will Even say... Because he's going to record it for him to watch later. <laughs> I think this is an important distinction to make. And as someone who is currently with child, <laughs> waddled my way in here today, <laughs> um, will be a working parent. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that he tried. Okay? <laughs> he had. He was busy. He was probably providing... Not the, good the, enough, Virginia. The no, not good enough. Actually, the par- you no, know, you're the kids. completely like, right. He was trying to be there. He, he made it to the yeah. baseball diamond. He was late. But he was trying. And guess what? He sent his assistant ahead to videotape so that he could see it later. But he I was think, trying. I, I, yeah, I, I do think, think it's weird. You're supposed to feel that way. I think that's his save the cat moment. That's fair. Because if without that, he's just intolerable. That's and true. And you don't love him. Well, he's he's a, a Wall Street guy in that way. Yeah. You know what I mean? He's he, like. Yeah. Like. Super cliche. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, I actually wrote this down. I was like, in Peter's defense, he is trying to close a $5 billion deal and his wife just tosses the phone out the window. Thank like, you. I'm sorry. Yeah. Somebody you. is being irrational in this moment and it's totally his wife. Th- it's I, not him. I, I was just, I just like. I think we need to stand up for adults <laughs> yeah. now that we're all grown up. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. There are some points where I'm like, all right, I know what point you're trying to make here, Steven Spielberg, but you don't not, quite put in the work for me to take your side with Well, it it's either. not trying that's one of the things that I think is actually um, interesting about like the theme of the movie because I, I I love movies that are about time and time changing and growing mm-hmm. older and mm-hmm. things like that uh, is that this movie seems for a long time to be mostly concerned with the fact that Peter grew up and that is wrong and right. Uh, I think he does come to understand that there needs to be balance in it, but I don't think it's spelled out as forcefully for like maybe children as it needs to be because that's their that's the target audience right. is children, and I think that uh, you one of the things that I would want to communicate, especially to children through a movie like this, is that like sometimes dads aren't there, but that's not because they don't love you. Well, also. It's act- you know? Peter was an orphan. So we if yeah. we also look at it cuz now we're talking about it I I'm I'm going to try to now look at it through a non-nostalgia lens and through like my adult yeah. sociological lens, right? <laughs> so if we go to that scene with the fundraiser, right? And he's yeah. got the grandma, aka Maggie Smith, who they aged up to look as old as she fucking was. <laughs> yes, now. we like, made a joke about that. We said she uh, looks the same. Yeah, age. she looks exactly we the were, same. We were like, remember when in a movie, if you wanted to play, have Maggie Smith play an old woman, you had to put makeup on her. And now it's like she looks like the Dowager Countess in yes. like uh, yeah, no. <laughs> Professor McGonagall's here, so yeah, exactly. Literally That's how same. I feel. I was gonna say Miss Havisham or whatever. Yeah, yeah. no, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. 
But I think it's an important distinction to make because if we look at it through the lens of what we know about trauma, right? Yeah. Peter was an orphan. He was adopted by Wendy, kind of. You know, the way that that Mm storyline goes is that, and she, through her organization, also helped him. So you you see that scene of of him giving the speech at this gala fundraiser. And he has that moment where he does kind of get choked up and he does kind of. So as an adult kind of seeing it through that lens, I realized that there's probably a lot. And they they talk about this. I don't think they use these words, but there's a lot that he probably had to repress to grow up. Right. There's a lot that he probably had to. Well, he he regressed his whole memory of Neverland. Exactly. Just so that he could survive. But what he did do that was different than what he had and the memories that he had as an orphan was. Oh, Wendy didn't adopt him, by the way. She got him adopted by the family. Yeah. That's a distinction to make. But. What he has been able to do through his job and through the security that that provides is provide a stable home for his kids. He might not be able to be there all the time physically, but he has provided a stability that he didn't have when he was a child. And so I think it's an important distinction to make now when I look back on it because I'm like, well, man, like there's so many layers of of other things that he had to repress to become the yeah. adult that he is and like you said well, and we being all an, do and being an adult is complicated and it's it's, complicated. it's hard to explain that to a child but i think what the movie and this is why i think he does come to that realization is what the movie is kind of doing is taking these kids away from their dad so that they are orphans and saying okay um is dad really there well, yeah. And what he's doing is he's showing them that, like, even if I'm not here at this specific moment, like, I'm still with you. I'm, I'm, I'm coming back. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm working for you. I'm working to rescue you. And the temptation to believe that he didn't even try. He didn't. He reached oh, out and he didn't even try yeah. to save us. Like well, the because so Hook is Hook is like the temptation that kids have to think the worst of their parents. Right. Right. And. Uh, and he, he's shown as being a fraud, you know, like when he at the end, when he's when he's stripped of his his coat and his hair and his dignity. And there, and she's just like, oh, look, without all the scariness and all this. Yeah. Like he really just is just a guy yeah. who doesn't have a mommy who gets eaten yeah. by an alligator. Claw. <laughs> <laughs> um, Weirdest ending to a film. Can we talk about how weird. Tinkerbell convinces Hook to go to war, though, like after they had pretty much like convinced each other to like have a peaceful solution no they and were gonna like they were no, gonna no, no, kill we need... pan right they were gonna kill peter banning and the kids okay okay i was <laughs> like wait a second wait a second wait a second they're gonna kill him i thought they were totally just gonna take the kids and like let peter go back to his no. own place no, or whatever they, they were, were bringing gonna, the yeah. plank and okay. everything that's yeah. fine that <laughs> makes a little bit more sense i was like why are we going to war if there's a peaceful solution right on the table right she here this knew seems exactly completely... how to get him too <laughs> yeah she walked at the end of his nose yeah well yeah. Also, like before we Dustin get too far Hoffman's... away, Glenn Close cameos yes, as we, the Boo Box pirate. Yep, she's the pirate that gets put Glenn in the Close Boo Box. Is the pirate who gets put in the Boo Box? That's Do you remember kind that scene? Funny. He's like, and, I'm sorry, I just just because Dustin Hoffman to me is 
perfection in this movie. He just goes, he's the best part. The boo box. Yeah. The boo box. And it's just like the way that yeah. he delivers that line and everybody's like, wah, the boo box. <laughs> and then you just, it's, it's just a pirate's chest with scorpions in it, which to be fair, is that'd be sounds terrifying. terrifying. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, that is Glenn Close, bearded and in drag as a pirate. That's great. Yeah. That's great. Um, Dustin Hoffman was easily my favorite part of this oh, movie. He's, he's I feel incredible. like uh, his performance is this, is like Alan Rickman's performance in uh, Prince of Thieves. Uh, I don't know. If oh, I've never Robin seen Hood, that. Prince of Thieves, no. where he's just completely over the top yeah. and it's completely wonderful. And oh. that's how I feel about Dustin Hoffman in this movie, too. Well, I mean, so he's good. committing so hard to being like a child's view of a scary pirate. Right. Like, right. It, it's so. I get, again, I'm going to keep drawing correlations to Popeye because that's, <laughs> that's what I love about another Robin Williams film. Uh, <laughs> that, like, again, it's the commitment to that character, to yeah. playing it as authentically as you can, which in this case means being very unrealistic at times because... Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. he is basically a drag pirate. We <laughs> talked about it, right? He's got the wig. He's got the makeup. Yep. He's got, you know, the hook and everything. And the relationship that And the different Smee, hook attachments. Oh, God. I love it. And But the relationship that he has with Smee, Bob Hoskins. Yeah. Oh, what a treasure in this movie. He the line where too, he's yeah. like... Yeah. I'm just... We're just jumping around time-wise. But uh, when they're, like, getting attacked... And uh, Hook says, what about Smee? And then Smee just runs around and goes, what about Smee? What about Smee? Wait a second. Smee's me. And it's just, oh, the way that he delivered that line to me is so great. But there's that moment where Hook is distraught. The kids don't love him. They don't want to be with him. But then Smee comes in and gives them the pep talk and is like, who's the scariest pirate? Yeah. Who yeah. And it's just like yeah. this amazing. And it, in an alternate dimension, I feel like they're a gay couple together and they're just like <laughs> trying to like, he's pepping him up. Trying to make it work. Yeah, they've got some sort of dom-sub situation going on. I don't know. But I love their their codependence on each other because he really needs me. He needs mm. me for who Smee is. But he also, I think that there's like, it, as much as Hook can respect anyone, I think there's a respect level there. And the way that Bob plays that, the way that their dynamic yeah. is, I just think it's delightful. And I just, oh, I love him so much. I, oh, sorry. I love that Smee is like, his, it seems like his favorite part of his job is tasting his food for poison. Right. Like, because he's like, I get to eat all this great food. And, like, <laughs> like nobody's going to poison Hook because, like, why would they? He's, like, the baddest pirate. Like, I just, oh, he's got all the turkey legs. Oh, what a, what a. And then he cameos at the end as the guy that's sweeping up when Peter yeah, wakes yeah. up outside. Oh, it just, I love Bob I, Hoskins so much. Yeah, I really, um, for, I think one of the things that makes the movie a little bit weird is that. Um, so much of the journey takes place with the kids too. Like there's so many protagonists in this film. Right. Like obviously you have Peter Banning, who's the main one, but Jack really has, uh, I think as an adult, I, for the first time, like watching this, I realized I kind of like Jack's story. Yeah. Um, cause I always, I didn't like that part of the story when I was a kid. I, uh, I've always, even as a kid been annoyed by child actors. That's um, fair. and I, I just don't think that, and this time watching it though, I was like, "Oh, he's got some actually like great moments in here yeah. that I'm misremembering from being being a kid." Because, uh, like, yeah, that moment where he's talking about he didn't even try, he didn't even like, man, that feels so much like a little kid crying. Yeah, uh, it's crazy. Um, 
Well, how about him on the plane ride over where he's just throwing the baseball up? Yeah, and yeah. And Peter's trying to just be like, just calm down. And he's like every terrible kid on a plane that's just like yeah. kicking the seat or whatever, you know. And so there is that element where he does – he is one of the main protagonists. But I think – and I want it kind of ties into what you were saying before. I think that there's a part of the journey that Peter takes that has to be told through the eyes of his son. Yeah. Right. Like it has to be filtered through that because they are father and son. There is a symbiotic relationship there. They are family. They are they have a relationship that I think in exploring Jack's narrative. Right. Because that baseball scene when, you know, he's like everybody's cheering. They're like, run home, Jack. Yeah. Run home, Jack. And (laughs) they have the moment where he's like, run home. And you can still tell that he's thinking about his dad. And then. Hook sees it and is like, yeah, oh, switch. And then yeah. it's like, home run, Jack. You know, and yeah. so I feel like there's there has to be a lot of the narrative told through Jack's eyes because Peter is still Peter Banning up until the last quarter of the film, right? Well, like he doesn't embrace that Peter Pan part again, which is that child, child yeah. mentality until very late, you know? But I think he's also the mirror for Peter because uh, Peter has to find his inner child and in a lot of ways Jack has to become uh, he has to start growing up that's that's a really good point um, yeah he, he has to stop believing things just because they're like he has to believe that things can be complicated yeah he has to learn that um, just because somebody is nice to you right now doesn't mean that they're your friend. Doesn't mean that like all of that everything that they and just be and just because because Hook when he makes the case against kids in the mm-hmm. movie he talks about like how parents feel about their kids. Oh yeah, dude, that is how so many people like when when they talk about why they don't want to have kids today. Yeah, it could be just a. James Hook speech. Well, that whole monologue. That whole monologue ends, is what oh, people talk about. Yeah. Like, oh, they used to stay up all night mm-hmm. just to spend time together. They used to do whatever they wanted. And now it's, I want a toy. I want a party. I want a, I want a puppy. Yeah, it, I want, I want, I want. Yeah, me, and, me, me, now, now, now. Yeah. And what, what <laughs> like, those are all, tr- like, Hook's not lying. Right. Like, he's telling the right. truth about what being a parent is. And making Jack feel bad about who he is and his relationship with his dad. And the responsibility that he became for his father that potentially is what disassociated him from being Peter Pan. Well, and he's he's eventually growing up to a person who can say, like, who, like, both of those characters grow. Peter Banning grows into a character that would go to his child's baseball game. And he grows up into, he starts growing up into a person who would... Still be sad, but not act like a little butthole because his dad did miss his game. Excuse me, language. (laughs) Because his dad did miss a game, you know? Right, exactly. He's he's learning the nuances of the world and and that, you know, trying maybe is almost as important as succeeding, right? I think that that's a lesson that we have to learn as we grow up, right, is that intention and and action is, is... important it's not maybe everything because if your intention doesn't necessarily match up with how you act right yeah then that's that's clearly a pattern but if you are trying there has to be a gray area where it's it can't just be like my dad doesn't care he didn't even try he did try he was caught in a net there's pirates everywhere
there. Yeah. He knew that he knew that you weren't going to get murdered. You know that he's terrified of heights. You know that he's terrified of heights. That's a phobia. Sure. Like there was elements to it where it was like it wasn't like he was just trying to save you blindly from falling off the Empire State Building and didn't try. There were extenuating circumstances, okay, Jack? There's a lot going on right now. And so I think that that element of is trying worth anything if the outcome isn't exactly what you want or what you were hoping for. And -hmm. I think that that's a lesson that Jack has to learn. And then that Peter maybe learns in the converse, which is like he's got to try a little bit harder. Yeah, you know, and so and, it's a really interesting. Just finding, and I'll grant that I'm, I am, like reading this into like there are certain times where I feel like the film is doing this really well, right? And there are certain times where I'm filling in the gaps. Yeah, sure. I feel like you guys got a lot more out of some of these scenes well, than I did. We watched we've a lot seen more. It yes, a lot. exactly. <laughs> alleged it yeah. a lot. And it's one of those things where like you build out the scene a little bit oh, in yeah. your head yeah. and stuff that's not necessarily on the screen. Yeah, but um, yeah, I. That's probably why this movie has a has such a fond place in my heart is because of um, that, like those lessons of growing up. And I feel like the um, in some ways uh, I know that I can be a very immature person, um, like especially for my age. And like I've made a lot of decisions in my life that have led me to be that way. Right. Um, There are also certain things that as a kid I didn't recognize and this mo- and this movie is one of them is that this movie is not just a movie about how being an adult sucks right um cuz that's how I felt about it for a really long time and I'll admit that there is a heavy part of like my internal makeup that is very much geared towards like rebelling against being an adult that's fair um yeah. And I'm not saying that this all comes from Hook, because that would be <laughs> quite well, an influential movie. Right. Yeah, that would be <laughs> <laughs> this and the Lost Boys. That's how I'm going to base my philosophy. Yeah, but like, uh, there, you know, you have various different types of media and conversations you have with other people that all kind of like create a confluence of events that solidify something inside of you. Right. And that's one of those. This movie has definitely had a part of that role in my life. Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the reasons also that, like, I have a complicated view of it because I, I like it, but I also don't like some of the tendencies in me that I feel like it fed into. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. No, I, I just... get that. that <laughs> I think – well, and I think it's really interesting that we're talking about this at this current point in my life because I am just now stepping into something that <sighs> – isn't necessarily a marker of adulthood, but when often talked about, people will be very dismissive and say things like, well, you really aren't, you don't understand responsibility until you have a kid, know. you know, all of these You're, tropes yeah. that people kind of will throw at mm-hmm. you, which I do not necessarily, I, I don't buy into that, right? I, I buy into the idea that they will be different responsibilities, that it will be different. But I don't think it's necessarily more of adulthood. I think it's just a different facet of adulthood, right? Because the idea that one cannot care about anything outside of oneself until one becomes a parent. That's ridiculous. What a ridiculous (laughs) thing. But as a society, we almost do get that reinforced by a lot of things, right? And not just – I'm not talking about even people grandparent age that will say things like that. I'm talking about – 
the way that car uh, commercials market to us, the way that yeah. certain storylines are, even in the way that the narrative of this of this film presents parenthood, right? Going back yeah. to that hook monologue, I, in kind of preparing for th- this baby, and you know. I'm 34 weeks pregnant on Tuesday, which that doesn't mean anything to anybody because I don't know when this will come out. And I could be 37 weeks pregnant by the time this comes out. But like currently when we're recording this, I'm almost 34 weeks pregnant. So I'm in this like home stretch of my life going to change forever. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. Very dramatic. Irrevocably, dramatically, my life will be changing in a matter of three to six weeks. Depending on when he decides to get here. And I think a a lot of times when people are talking about, like, you don't get it or whatever, that's what they're referring to. Like, they may not have the precise language to, like, nail it down and say exactly what they mean. But, like, that's what they're talking about. Your life is about to... To just be different. Yeah, really, absolutely will be. And, I mean, like, you watching this, like, even if you would have watched this a couple weeks ago. And if you would watch it in ten weeks from now after you've had the baby, I'm sure the viewing experience would be phenomenally different. Like, it would be completely different. hundred percent. Because your views are completely based on your perception of the world at that given time. So everybody constantly comes with whatever they have. They're all of their baggage. They drag that with them to that viewing, and that becomes their viewing point from Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And so like, I just think it's interesting because I I do enjoy what this movie tries to say about growing up. I think there are these really poignant moments. I like that the sort of resolution at the end is that you can still have a connection to your inner child and be mm-hmm. be in tune with that and close a 5 billion dollar deal, you know. There are these elements where it can it can happen simultaneously and so i think that the way that it goes about kind of joining that dichotomy into a single idea i think is really powerful i think you know and again if we really want to get into like the flaws that i find in it which are very few because again (laughs) i think it's a perfect film but you know the tinkerbell scenes are a little kind of awkward i think that when we get into some of the 90s awesomeness. The, the food fight scene we just need to have a whole conversation about. But um, I think that there's an element of – how do I want to – when Peter becomes Peter Pan fully again, yeah. what we don't really hone in on that I didn't really kind of dissect until I was an older person watching this is that there's an, a dissociative nature where he has to completely dissociate with the adult version of himself – to tap back into Peter Pan, right? No. Like he doesn't even who, kid, Jack. He doesn't even remember Jack. Like at memory a works point. weird in this place. Yes. Like like it's yeah. literally hours apart, and he's like, I completely forgot who you are, Dad. I, I don't even I, have yet. Yeah, I have how kids? does that work? Like, yeah. What? No, like and, and it's yeah. really interesting of how they make that such a severe but turn. I, that was actually think, some of my favorite parts too was just like how memory were like building out the yeah. world of Neverland a little right. bit more was some of my favorite parts like the magic systems in uh, fantasy worlds are some of the coolest things in fantasy worlds honestly right. um, and in this world everything was just kind of it was hinted at but they never gave you any definite like nailed down it's this al- is how it's it works it's obvious that it but it feels like it works the way make believe works 
Yeah, well, right. um, and it doesn't it, like there's no or, or make believe from a kid's perspective. Yeah, because there's no, like you even even when they're showing up above, you see like the compass rose in the water. And it's yeah. like as a kid, like when you're flying over, like you would think, oh, I'm going to look down. And I'm going to see the state lines and I'm going to see where the compass rose yeah. is and stuff like right. that. Or at least, you know, that's yeah. how I pictured when well, I was yeah. flying and stuff like that. So, yeah, because I mean, like as a kid, maps. exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, and, you I, know, in the Atlantic Ocean, there's a big compass rose and that's how it looks. But, but I think what's really interesting about like that, um, like what you're talking about like with the how peter has to get in touch with his kids his his childhood self but like really the thing that makes him pan is that he can fly and how does he fly memory it's an adult memory of his son being born right oh right Mm -hmm. like it's it's not a childhood memory um it's finding it's finding the magic in the rest of his life that makes him pan again because he had forgotten that magic and now he's found it again. That's really true. That's a really mm-hmm. great point. But it's interesting to me that in that and in living in that magic, yeah. he does forget who he was yeah. for a time. And he has to He gets to like be caught reminded. up in it. Yeah, he know? gets exactly. Which I think. Which I think is reflective of how do. kids are. Yeah. Like, it's, it's a reflection of like. And yeah, adults are that way, too. But like kids like. Kids are just concentrated adults in some ways. They're just like <laughs> they well, have the same. They, they have that yeah. same. Pro- they have that same problem that we do, but it's all just bound up in this little body that doesn't that know what to do it. yet. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, I let's get let's get into then like maybe uh, favorite moments from the film. Then like what like if you pick out your uh, like. The the storylines that kind of fit best for you, the ones that yeah. uh, you you just give you the most uh, like reflection moment and the, all this is. Yeah. So there's a couple for me. Um, and this is why when we when you asked me about what spiritual a, con- a spiritual connection, something that kind of. So the food fight scene is great. Yeah. And up, Virg? Virgil is scratching. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, so the food fight scene is great because it is that moment of like connection back to childlike memory, the way that we all play make believe. The food doesn't show up until he actually kind of until he believes acquiesces in it. into the belief of it. All of that. Well, until he great. like loses his sense of adulthood because he gets caught up in the in the um, insult battle. Well, which, like he by the stops way, thinking like an adult and starts thinking like a kid. So the insult battle, which ends with him saying, "Rude, too, lewd, bag of pre-chewed food, dude." Yeah. Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> um, that was a really big scene for me because I, like a lot of kids, got bullied when I was younger mm-hmm. because, a, 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 like what we talked about, yeah. there's a you know hurt people, hurt people, all of the cycles that we know as adults. But it wasn't until that moment where Peter lets go and really actually stands up for himself, right? Because up until then, they've kind of just treated him like the old fat man yeah, running around. And he's kind of let them drill Sergeant him around. And he kind of, he does, he feels like this is the way to get his kids back, but he also doesn't feel comfortable. He's in such a middle ground, right? So that moment of breakthrough for him where he just completely lets go because the beginning of that scene is him just being like, you are a very rude person, you know, and he kind of doesn't allow himself to just kind of stand up for who he currently is. Then that becomes that element where he can 
stand on his own two feet. And it ends with when he says that, one of the other kids goes, bang around, Peter! You know? Yeah, yeah. And so it's got this really great moment where you see him. It's just the glimpse of him starting to kind of become a fuller version of himself. Yeah. Which as a kid, I really appreciated that because to have the ability to stand up for yourself against whatever, right? It doesn't necessarily need to be a bully, but to be able to stand up for yourself, to speak for yourself is a powerful thing. And I think that that's a lesson that kids learn over time because what we see so often in childhood is is children mimicking what their parents believe because that's what they're exposed to. And then often that breakaway into someone standing on their own standing in their own viewpoint can cause tension points, right? Mm -hmm. For parents and kids, it can cause a tension point because you no longer are necessarily leaning on what you've been told to believe, which in this context is that he's, he's not the pan. Yeah. He's just trying to get his kids back. He's not the pan. He's not trying to be the pan. He's not trying to take Rufio's crown. He's just trying to get his kids back. And so in that moment, I think it's such a really powerful kind of, oh, God, it it all kind of comes together for me in this really great just melting pot, I guess, is a good way, you know. And then he can see the mashed potatoes and he can see the frosting and he can see the chicken legs and all of the, (laughs) you know, and that great art of just the way that that production design is of that whole table and the spread and everything that to me was just a really powerful moment to be honest and so it's one of my favorites in the whole film and then my other favorite which I think they're probably tied is at the end when he's become the pan when Rufio says you are the pan and he's saying goodbye to all the kids because he's gonna fly back and take his Mm -hmm. kids back And he's kind of walking around and he says, I need to give this sword. I've got to give this sword to somebody. And and you think it's going to be Rufio, right? You think he's going to Well, no, because Rufio's dead. Mm -hmm. Oh, right. No, yeah, Rufio's dead. Sorry, that's sad. Um, But you you don't expect it to go to the character that it does, I guess, is a great. So that turn at the end, and I'm blanking on his actual name, but the the rounder kid that at one point they genuinely like turn into a ball. Turn into a (laughs) cannonball, which that that was problematic for me. I think think, (laughs) – I think in that scene, like, it's not as – because I, I think, like, for an astute viewer, you can tell who he's going to give it to. But the the important thing is Thud doesn't know. Right. He doesn't expect he doesn't it to know. go to him. And the, the music, the, the scoring that's around it – well, because I really do – I think there's an element where it could have gone to any of the other lieutenants, you know, the other yeah. kids that were kind of – behind Rufio but it does exactly and it to your point it's it that's exactly right Thud does not expect it and so for that to land on him and for him to kind of say you have this responsibility now there's Mm -hmm. a lot of people smaller than you you have to take care of them and then the kid next to him says well who will I take care of and Robin (laughs) says the never bugs very small barely (laughs) see them (laughs) you know it's this moment of like passing a mantle in a way that probably forever changes Thud's life. And then the ripples of that and the rest of the Lost Boys, you don't get to see, but we see just the seeds being planted of that. And I don't know. I just, (laughs) even thinking of it now, it just makes me tear up a little bit because it's like, I think, ah, it's hard. I think childhood is so hard. And so I think this movie what it does so well 
is even with these lost boys who are perpetual children, it hones in on the pain and the sorrow that they might feel and validates it. You know, and that's something that I think every kid needs is to feel seen. Mm -hmm. And so I think in so many ways with all of the protagonists in this film, I think one of the strengths that it really does have is that it does kind of see everyone, even even the old man at the end who really did lose his marbles. (laughs) Yeah. You know, and Thud is the one that had been holding on to them for him, you yeah. know, and was like, make sure he and, you know, they've yeah. got that great scene in the trees where he's like, wow, he really did. He really did <laughs> lose his marbles, you know, and it was great. And so I think that just that validation through Thud, if we expand that out to a child in the audience who might have a, a relationship or relate to Thud, that then becomes this moment of like an adult. Because he's fully panned, but he's also Peter panning, and he, you know Peter panning, and he's got his kids. That being like, I see you. That's a really powerful moment. That's hmm. a really powerful moment. You know. Yeah. The the one of them that has always stood out to me is um, one partially because I just love sword fighting. Oh yeah. Um. So this is a great sword fight sequence at the end of it. Um, yeah. It's certainly not on the level of. You know, Zorro, Lord of the or, Rings, or something. Uh, Make a you, bath. Know, you know, something like that. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's got a great sword fight, uh, particularly between Rufio and Hook. Um, oh, and yeah. when Rufio dies, um, it's a really great moment for me. Uh, I love the way the wind kicks up, and yeah. uh, and Peter is like blown back a little mm-hmm. bit. Um, how sudden it is, how, like, um, for a moment you feel like Rufio is actually, like, going to hold his own against mm-hmm. him. And, and, and it's just so fast. It's just like, boom, snick, done. Yeah. And you get that moment where Peter gets blown back and then Jack looks at his dad and it's just like, oh, I'm so sorry, dad. Because, like, he realizes in that moment this is his fault. That, like, the consequences of me being mad at my dad and not forgiving him and not like like me wearing this hat me wearing this wig and this mm-hmm. coat me d- being in drag as a child <laughs> <laughs> like the consequences of me making these choices have led to something absolutely terrible that i had no i i didn't realize cuz i think that th- like that's an important moment because one of the things that kids struggle with is they have so little experience they don't know yet consequences they really don't yeah. know what can happen right um and i th- i just like that moment of connection between him and his father and saying like like realizing what's happened because for a moment he's an observer mm-hmm. he's not a part of this exchange like uh uh peter doesn't go to him he goes to rufio and like holds him and he says i wish i would have had a dad like you um and like all of that there there's a real power in being an observer of something that yeah. you're not a part of um it just really for a moment there jack is just like us audience members right and is just seeing something happen and coming to grips with it and uh i think that's why that moment in particular is really powerful to me 
That's a good point, man. I like when the kids get kidnapped. <laughs> <laughs> that was dude, that was my crazy. favorite part. Hey, I was fine. like, this is like, fantastic. From the, from the dude, it's um, a, it's yeah, a the scene. the first scene when you see like the hook and stuff the on the door. The yeah, I was like, is this like, is oh, great. I was. Yeah. It's the first part in the movie where I was like, I actually feel something now. <laughs> and so, the children were screaming, yeah. screaming, yeah. screaming. Oh, yeah. I was I mean, like, oh little... shoot! I was yeah. like, this gets dark. That's fast. a scary moment. Yeah, well, like, when they come that back scene. and all the scrape marks on yeah. the wall. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah, that woman that was saying probably that my screaming part. line. <laughs> also, is, like, you just let the audience know that you hate children. That's fine. I, no, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, love it when they get kidnapped. <laughs> that's not what I'm saying. Old. I'm just saying I like that moment in the movie. <laughs> so, and when children get kidnapped in real life, I mean, I like prisoners too. That's all about kids getting kidnapped. So every milk carton I have has a missing kid on the back <laughs> i am here for it yeah but yeah i uh i just i wanted to point out a couple of lines yeah that are in this movie that i really love um the first one comes from his wife moira mm-hmm. uh when she like yeah she has thrown away the, the phone and done a very childish thing mm-hmm. in that i think she recognizes that very quickly though yeah does she um, though yeah. also, <laughs> shout out to that phone the original cell phone basically yeah. uh yeah that was the first one yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah when she talks to him about um we have a few short years where the kids want you around like in a couple years jack won't even want you to go to his baseball right. games and she says, we have these few short years and you are missing them. Yeah. And I'm like, like that contextualizes everything else. Right. Um, it, it tells you like that the whole this is about lost time. So, yeah, yeah. Like this, this whole uh, like her for me, I'm a little lighter on her with throwing the phone out the window. I'm assuming this is not the first time they've had this argument. Right. Um, like that is still that phone was probably real expensive at that time i'm not trying to get hung up on the phone either i'm just saying he's still a a little bit ridiculous he's a rich dude (laughs) but yeah i agree with you i'm there with you that's a little she went level 10 real quick yeah uh it's just this this was a level six argument and you jumped to 11 quick (laughs) so i yeah i i'm a little less harsh on her for that i like i said i think uh i oh whatever uh i just think that like that moment it it brings it brings out the importance of what she's trying to say there right that like look this is a billion dollar deal um it's a five billion dollar deal stop trying (laughs) to minimize his deal it's money worked hard for it but like these are your kids these are your kids lives five billion would you give five billion dollars would you give five billion dollars to like spend time with your kids like you know that's (laughs) Five billion dollars. That's a, a lot, lot of money. Of Holy money. cow! Yeah. Money is just money, guys. <laughs> that's how this film sees it. Right. That's fair. Like that's how this. Yeah, film... but you're putting five billion dollars against an afternoon at a baseball game. Like I can o- totally understand no, Robin. Way, Billy- I'm lost. just kidding. I'm okay. just kidding. Yeah. Jack sucked. They like, lost. I'm they didn't saying. win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe if Jack was a better baseball player, then Maybe his mom and dad varsity. wouldn't have gotten a divorce. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my yeah. god, what if Hook was like, and if you would have played baseball better? <laughs> I do like you their version of baseball the where they shoot the runner because oh, yeah. he's stealing second. That so was funny. funny. That was, yeah, I laughed at that part. I actually. loved the, all the Neverland stuff. I really did. I thought all of the, and it, again, it 
it's very whimsical. If we're going to compare it to some other Spielberg films, I think obviously there's going to be some lack in production design versus I, some other things. But I, I think the production design, I thought the production great. design was I, the okay, best good. part. I, actually, I, I really, I mean, I'm such it's an so apologist for this movie, the, but I love the, it. The ship is gorgeous. Yeah, like the the Lost Boys Village is. Like uh, I wanted it to looks, live there. It's just a so bunch of tree badly. forts. It's like yeah. exactly what uh, you would have built as a kid. It, <laughs> it reminded me a lot of like the uh, '60s Swiss Family Robinson movie and that stuff was like such, that. I yeah. wanted to live there too. Um, and oh, yeah, like God. that was a movie that I grew up on. So I was like, "Oh, this is great!" But I yeah. feel like Swiss Family Robinson takes so itself a little bit more tragic? seriously. Actually, they have changed the treehouse in Disney World and Disneyland that used to be Swiss Family Robinson no. to Tarzan. Oh. Does and it so look exactly the same? It's almost still? exactly the same, but they've changed like just little bits. But it's it's the same structure. So really, like you go up. Actually, maybe the one in Disney World is still Swiss Family Robinson. That would be great because I think they still have they they've like recreated the parents' bedroom. And yeah, there's like the organ and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but the one in Disneyland, they've changed it to Tarzan, and I was like, don't fool me. Yeah. I know what this is. Like yeah. I know what this is. That water system, Tarzan didn't build that waterway. Yeah. That was the brothers and the father. That was some heavy engineering yeah. for that early on. Okay? Riding around on the emus oh, and stuff. If like you guys that. ever want to do an episode about that, I will oh, we should totally do Swiss Family Robinson because I'm am, totally I into that love one. That movie so yeah. much. Okay, like, then yeah. that'll be the reverse where we're where, <laughs> where this you, time it's yes. me and you are like, yeah, this movie's great, and Seth's like, oh, not so much. And this will be you guys think yes. this movie's yeah. great. Yeah, I'm pretty I'll excited for that so one. Am, it's amazing. Oh no, it really is. There's gender politics in that movie where she has to pretend. Oh, it's fantastic. I watched it a year and a half ago and it oh holds up God. still. So, I but still have of course, it on I don't. VHS. I think my oh, parents do so too, actually. I so. have that like, per, that like turtle shell box of it. You okay. Know, whatever yeah, it is, exactly. Like, classic. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Sorry, that was a tangent. But yeah. Great. So, we already know what our next show will be. <laughs> oh, no. So good. Yeah. Actually, let's, uh, let's cut off the discussion about Hook. Okay. And then, uh, you know, we, we should actually get into our discussion of. Dead Poet Society, yeah, which will actually be part of another episode. Okay, great. I was just going to ask if it was going to be. Yeah. So, okay, cool. uh, let's just uh, like wrap well, we... this out here then, yeah, and we'll do a little run to the restroom really quick. Yeah. Well, wait, We've do got we want to just have like a we'll just do like a little wrap up on? Oh yeah, yeah, fine, and then we can yeah. Um. So, all right, yeah. Uh. So well, I'm trying to think what the last like thing we were talking about with. Production we jumped design. to Swiss Family Robinson. We really like production design. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then that, yeah. Yeah, because I, I, I love that ship. I love the, the, the village. Everything him, about it. Him uh, the tapping sword. on the steps, and then the red carpet yes, coming the red down. Carpet. <laughs> or, or the way that the, he like cuts out the shape of him oh, in yeah! the sail before he, he comes we, through. Which I love all of the actual like string, the like rope work in that because it's yeah. like he's not flying. You can t- he just yeah, literally yeah. fades in. Which I think there are might moments be an where it works Mary better Martin as pa- Peter Pan. You know, like. Like where you got to see the strings. I don't know if you guys ever saw the Mary Martin version. I've seen bits but... of it. So you could see the strings. Yeah. It was real yeah. bad. They and... just did another updated version of it a couple of years ago, oh, too. Live. With, um, Allison Williams. Version? Yeah. 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 yeah it wasn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. I just saw promos of it for yeah, like you didn't three months anything. straight. Yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's something about like this era of filmmaking where something like that gets front and center yeah. instead of getting thrown into the background. I feel like um, there are like, there's a ton going on in the background of this film for yeah. sure. Um, but I just, I love those spotlight hero moments um, that are very creative and they're not like, like super cliche there. Mm-hmm. It's not just a moment. Somebody like just got done punching. Somebody stands up and says a BA line, you know, right. it's like it, 
it feels really authentic and true to the character. You can't move that into any other movie and it works just as well. Um, I, I really love Robin Williams in this movie. The, the transformation that he goes through as Peter Banning into Peter Pan is just, it's, it's a perfect, it's a, it's a perfect like example of acting, like what a great actor can do. He can play both of these characters in such a believable way. Like he can pull off wearing the business suit and wearing green tights. Right. Uh, he, he pulls off that slouchy, can't keep up with anybody guy, but he also plays the spry, quicker like than the eye kind of guy. Doing, yeah. Um, I just, I, I think that he's absolutely amazing in this movie. Um, one of his best roles. Oh, and weren't we just so lucky to have him for as long as we did? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I genuinely feel that, and I. It's hard because we are recording this on the fifth anniversary of his death, and so we talk about it, and you can't. You can't talk about his life without talking about his death, right? And maybe, I mean, you can, but because of the day that it is today, you know, I think one of the greatest things about him as a person was that I think his life often mirrored the choices that he made in acting, right? Because mm-hmm. I think he put so much of himself into every role. But one of my favorite things about after he died was. All of a sudden, all these news reports were coming out about all of the charity work that he did that he never publicized, mm-hmm. all of the USO tours that he did that he never told anybody about, all of the things, the, the the way that he was a friend to people. You know, one of my favorite interviews was Billy Crystal actually coming on The View, and he just sat down just with Whoopi Goldberg, and they had known each other since Comic Relief yeah. in the 80s, and them reminiscing and Billy talking about how when Whoopi would host the Oscars, Robin would call Billy during every commercial break and say, how's our girl doing? Don't you think she's doing great? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah." And they'd talk through all the commercial. And then as soon as it was back on, I'd be like, all right, I'll call you back soon. And then they'd watch her. And then he'd call again and be like, oh, that, that bit was so great. You know, and how involved he was in just life and living. And so I think that when we, as viewers, you know, and I'm projecting, so I'm just assuming that everybody feels this way. But for me, when I watch him be so full of life, and we're talking about the birdcage, Mrs. Doubtfire, I mean, uh, Patch Adams. Dead Poets, the next one, I think. Good Morning Vietnam. Like, all of these films that, like, are to me so synonymous with who... I imagine a, a part of him was in real life. I just feel so lucky. I feel like we've all been so lucky to have been around and to have, have had part of who he was help us grow up. Yeah, you know? I, I feel like you can say that about like a, a lot of artists who touch yeah. you. Like you're, you just feel lucky enough to be on earth at the same time that their the work is out there time. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And like – one of the things that I, I've recognized recently is like sometimes like we'll watch a movie or or whatever and I'm like, you know, I feel lucky that I'm going to get to watch this guy's next movie in a couple of years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you get to see like you realize you start noticing those people yep. who are, you know, have a voice, who have, like you said, this life in them mm-hmm. and uh 
you realize you're alive at the same time of them as them. And it's, it's sad that like, for me, I didn't realize that till Robin Williams was gone. I didn't realize how special he was. I wasn't, I wasn't like going, Oh, what's the next Robin Williams movie? Oh, he is directly responsible for me becoming a filmmaker directly because the joy that I found in his films and others, obviously, but directly directly responsible for me being wanting to specifically work in the medium of film but then just developing as a storyteller mm-hmm. because just watching him be on like actor studio inside the yeah. actor studio i mean that to me i i think i just wanted to evoke that feeling in people that he evoked in me which was yeah. this idea of endless possibility. Well, and I think that's the sign of a great artist right there is inspiring other artists to do something else. Even yeah. if it's like, you know, like we'll we'll all take certain artists that we resonate with and they'll impact our lives in small ways. And we use those small ways to kind of influence our own path and how yeah. we choose to live our life and what art we put out to. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, like Robin Williams might have been only like a small part or like he might have been a huge part of your life. Yeah. But I mean, like the good thing is because we all live together on this planet, like that's not going to be the last Robin Williams-esque person that you're going to have in your life. Like there will be another yeah. artist that comes in to take the place. Uh, I feel like art is kind of part of this transient thing. Like it'll get greater and then it'll fade again. Um, and that's kind of like the lifestyle of a person or that's the, like the life cycle of a person right. and as well as art too. So, I mean, like Robin Williams might be dead, but his art can still resonate with everybody. Which too. is the gift of, of the time I think that we live in because it's so easily recordable, it's so easily recordable. It's so easily accessible. It's and so preserved. easily. Yeah. And, and again, I, I will say like, I did not even need to watch this film to be as well-versed to have this conversation and that alone I think is exactly the testament to what you're talking about is Mm -hmm. this film lives in my heart Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. this film lives in my heart and and can constantly be a point of recall for me when I need it Mm -hmm. and that that is just the that's the best gift I think that any artist can really give is, yeah. is just there's a part of yourself that you leave it's, with every piece, but like knowing that that piece then lives in other people. It's what you hope for when you're creating. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I just am so grateful that we did get to live when he did. We did get to be a part of, of that. He has now become a part of me and and who I am as a person. And and yeah. and I just am so I'm so grateful. So I'm so glad that, you know, you guys asked me to kind of pitch ideas for this because really yeah. truly like spiritual experiences i think really have no box they have no bounds there's no outline mm-hmm. and so this film has been and will always be a spiritual experience for me and i hope maybe that this conversation will help, inspire some yeah, people, to, people re- to see it yeah, yeah and maybe rewatch it with a different lens that isn't as critical or isn't as cool or isn't comparing it to the suspense of Jurassic Park or Jaws or all of these other Spielberg films, let it live in what it is, Mm -hmm. which is a a really a a great film. It's just a great film. And, and I will defend it to death. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that is probably a good place for us to end our conversation about hook Robin Williams. We miss you. And you (laughs) are always, you are in our hearts. And, uh, 
hopefully he's found his uh, his Neverland where he can be young mm-hmm. forever. I'd like to think that he's just playing World of Warcraft <laughs> somewhere because he loved it. Did so. he? Oh, that's, yeah. That's he started amazing. doing the commercials with his daughter, Zelda. Oh, you know what? I did know about that, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, yeah I mean, he and his daughter played video World games, but I didn't know it was World of Warcraft. So I'd that's like to awesome. think he's playing World of Warcraft in the sky somewhere. Yeah. Next up, we're going to be uh, talking about uh, Chapter 3 of Sculpting in Time by Heck Andrei yeah. Tarkovsky. Uh, we talked about the previous two chapters a couple weeks back. Uh, yeah, this chapter was a little bit harder than uh, his other ones, I think, for me to get through because um, – I don't know. It just wasn't resonating quite as much. Yeah. I, we both talked about this a little bit before we even jumped on uh, the mics here. Um, this one, in previous chapters, Tarkovsky kind of talks about how uh, if he's left to his own devices, he kind of goes on metaphys- metaphysical musings. Um, and I felt like this whole chapter was just kind of him musing on what time is. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And for some of the stuff, I was like, this is great. There's a lot of cool stuff in here. Especially the front part of the chapter. Yeah, um, where he talks about, like, cinema's relation to time and stuff like that. Yeah. It's really interesting. But he goes over the same stuff, like, again and again. And the page or the chapter is, like, 24 pages long yeah. or something like that. And I'm like, okay, you could have wrote this in 10, probably. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, it did have some really good uh, moments. Uh, I think, like, some of his stuff about how, like, uh, he quotes Dostoevsky again at the very beginning. He's like, time isn't a thing. It's an idea and it'll die out in your mind. Um, and I think just kind of taking that approach to the concept of time is an interesting way to look at it, especially when like cinema is like that manipulation of time. We've talked about that a lot. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think also uh, Tarkovsky, you get a real sense in, um, in this book that uh, why he would be a difficult person to work with. Yeah. Um, he's very strident in his views and very monolithic about them. Like uh, at times it does feel like because uh, there's times where he says things as like, well, and most obviously in this. And and, yeah. and I'm just like, oh, question mark next to it. Really? I don't know, necessarily take that as a given. Yeah. There, there's a lot of things where he's just like, this is how things are. And if you see that in a different way, it's like you're from a different like he doesn't even acknowledge that any yeah which which from a certain perspective i guess like if he is saying like you know this is the way that it is and like you said if you see it a different way you're from a different school of thought i can understand why he's not giving it as much time because it's not as meaningful to him Mm -hmm. but it does feel like um a little arrogant at times uh yeah i i think he's He's kind of paradoxical in a lot of his beliefs, too, I feel like. Uh, Like, I I think it's in this chapter where he talks about, um, like, cinema's relationship to literature and how he doesn't like it. Yeah. But then at the same time, all of his, like ideas about the world are pulled from different literature things like so he's I'm constantly ju- quoting yeah like literature. you're constantly quoting Kafka, you're constantly quoting uh, dostoevsky and uh like tolstoy and stuff like that so i'm like okay you might not like cinema's relationship to literature but you love literature's relationship to yourself <laughs> and yeah. like uh cinema should at the essence of it be a reflection of self um, so, I mean, like any art should in the yeah. long run be a reflection of self. And like, if I look at your artwork, I should be able to see deeper into your soul kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. It's just, it's, it's kind of a weird. Yeah. I think, I think that he's quirk. on a very specific journey that is peculiar to him mm-hmm. where he is looking for the essence of film 
in a way that most people are not. Yeah. Um, most people are interested in utilizing film mm-hmm. for something, and he wants to explore film itself. And that's why a lot of his conversations seem very out, out of step with other schools of thought mm-hmm. because, like, the fundamental, like, building blocks of uh, those schools of thought have nothing in common with what he's doing cinematically. Yeah. Well, well, like he talks about, uh, like the poet, what does he say? Something about how, uh, I'm not going to find it now. Um, sorry, I'm going to try and find this really quick and then I'll come back to it. If you want to, cool. Yeah. I'll give an example. Like one of the things that he talks about, um, is creating, uh, an authentic sense experience for the audience. And he's talking about like, say with a dream sequence, um, most people, because they're primarily looking to use film as a an avenue for delivering a story, they don't mind that when somebody like does somebody starts dreaming or whatever that like there be fog in the scene or you might do like a a, dis, a certain kind of dissolve or there are ways of cueing the audience that this is happening in a dream or a flashback. And yeah. he says like and he, I I remember uh, it was a kind of a um uh. I don't know, like an abrupt statement of his where he's just like real cinema doesn't need that. Yeah. He's like because because he's like saying that's not what dreams are like. There's no mist in your dream. There's no fog in your dream. What that is is a visual cue to the audience to say I'm showing you a dream. He's like what I want to do is show you a dream without spelling it out for you that I'm showing you a dream. Yeah, he seems to think that like – there are certain things that are almost like stumbling blocks that are left over from like uh, cinema's earlier days. Like he talks about uh, like a gunshot ringing out and yeah. like the, the camera cuts to a shot of horses like raising their heads so that the like the, the, the viewer knows that like a gunshot just went off or something. Yeah. And he's like, we don't need that in film anymore. Like we can just show what happens and it's just as yeah. powerful as uh, like messing it all up. And I actually I don't or like cutting it all up and like doing different things. And I actually I think that's just two different ways of directing. Like, yeah, I, like I, I could totally too. see how like there's a there's the Veritas and uh, what is it the um, uh, artifice the artifice yeah so like he's there's two really diff- struggling with that in yeah, this chapter he is very much like I want to show you truth and this is my version of truth but at the same time like we like I uh, what's it called uh, Ivan's childhood like that movie has dream sequences in it yeah um, like there are certainly moments where you're like this is a dream or this is at least a kind of sequence that's supposed to be represent representative of something else like you are not showing me something that is completely true um, so yeah right. like even in his own work he's kind of going back well, and forth yeah because he's really struggling and and this is something that we talked about in film school but we'll just bring it up for people who haven't been um, like the difference between artifice and veritas and veritas is really like uh, one of the better examples of it is like just the early films that were made that were like people were still fascinated by the idea that you could take moving pictures and so they like there are films of just workers leaving a factory yeah the actualities it's, yeah like it's not it's not being set up there's no uh nobody was uh like paid as an extra to walk this way and you walk that way that it just i put a put a camera outside of a factory and around quitting time and let it roll mm-hmm. and that's like veritas that is like as true as you can get yeah but artifice is all about like 
manipulating what appears on screen in order to create a certain emotion. So like Georges Méliès with all of his special effects or something like that or like, you know, uh, or, yeah. or CGI or anything like that. It is it is or even like the uh, one of the conversations I have with my family all the time, my in-laws and my wife is uh, I like candid photos. Mm-hmm. because those are more veritas mm-hmm. whereas i don't like getting posed pictures. posed pictures because that is artifice i always look like i'm nervous or something yeah like that. it's because <laughs> it's, it's just it's because you're giving a performance it's like, like portraiture. don't point that picture or don't point that camera at me yeah. right now <laughs> yeah and so like you uh there it's kind of a struggle i think probably for every filmmaker and it to n- Find the line on that continuum where you operate well and where things like resonate with you, because as as true as just a shot of factory workers leaving at the end of the day is, it doesn't communicate the emotion that any of those factory workers feel. No, because the emotions are invisible. Mm -hmm. But. I mean, he talks about how to craft that in earlier chapters, too, yes. which is funny. So, so that's that's like the line of bringing in artifice to help you capture the true essence of something that is lost in Veritas. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's just striking that balance, I think. And that's and, a lot of what this chapter was kind of about. Um, I did kind of like uh, going back to the Lumiere's thing. I, I liked how he worded uh, – he pretty much he pretty much talks about how while the Lumieres did this, they pretty much created a matrix of time on which uh, images could be recorded, um, like yeah. you know that that twenty four frames per second or whatever. Um, that was like the original building blocks for you know film. And he's like, now you can you know take a whole life or something like that, and it would be this many meters of film, and you'd have to cut it down to two thousand, which would be like an hour and a half of film. And he yeah. was like, if you looked at this from a, a billion different directors, every single one of those films would be different because like everybody would take certain things that resonate with other people and cut them down into something. But yeah. 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 That's really, that was really interesting. Um, this movie or this, this chapter really, uh, a lot of its ideas about time and the way that he mulls over time was very meaningful to me, um, in the beginning where he's just talking about how time moves, uh, whether, um, we can ever really know certain parts of time. Like uh, one of the things that he talks about is how um, the past doesn't really exist um, in, in a certain way, like because we can't have any effect on it. Yeah. Um, and in that way, the future is more real than the past. And like, I don't know. Actually, have an effect a little bit. Yeah. yeah, just just certain ideas that he he that he talks about that are really fascinating, like that I haven't thought about before, um, uh, about why the present is so valuable and so precious. Uh, it's it's a really interesting chapter from that per- perspective. Uh, one of also I discovered a new favorite word, um, saba. Which oh, is the Japanese the thing? Japanese yeah. word, because uh, he talks about how uh, the Japanese ha- see a certain charm in something having old age. Yeah. Um, so there's there is something about uh, wrinkles in a person, mm-hmm. or about rust on a blade or on a f- implement that they find particularly meaningful. Yeah. 
Um, it's the beauty in the passage of time. And like I, I, I know myself personally, like I always gravitate towards stuff that's older. Like I love older books. I love yeah. uh, older films and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, this Saba thing is like, oh, yeah, that's definitely like I definitely gravitate towards stuff like this. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or like I, I even think of like, I don't know, a lot of times when I think of uh, something new that I need to make or something that I need to, you know, whatever, I I would rather make it out of things that I already own or like out of something that used to belong to my dad or um, because there's like this this other sense of i don't know almost like the spirit. there's more yeah. there's more memory that is connected with something that's older kind of thing. yeah um i don't know like like you go over to europe and stuff like that and you look around at some of the old buildings and it's like these are you know 700 to a thousand years old and then you come to america and it's like yeah you want to come into my 50 year old house and it's like yeah there's nothing that's there's no history there's no like in like i don't know the saba thing is kind of just like it's it's just an essence of it. It's they yeah. even compare it to a Pantina. Um, it's just a film that kind of lays on it. It's not exactly uh, like something that you can see exactly, but it's just the feeling that it comes with it. And I kind of really enjoyed that. Yeah. Um, I had a lot more trouble when it came to like the latter half of this chapter. Um, just because I feel like he puts out there some ideas that um, I don't know if he totally supports them. Uh yeah, because he keeps going back to this is what I think about filmmaking sometimes. And it's like, yeah, I have I can see your perspective on uh, some techniques, but then I've also seen other techniques like doing the exact opposite uh, thing that you're trying to talk about. Um, I'm yeah, like to come he, up ta- with he talks about here some critics. Here. He said he's talking about this. Uh, uh, there Apparently at the time there were some critics that were very excited about the possibilities of doing cinema on five or six screens yeah. at the same time and all this stuff. And uh, he says he says the only result of that would be chaos. The laws of perception would be broken um, and the author of the polyscreen film would inevitably be faced with the task of somehow reducing simultane- simultaneity to sequence. And then before that he said uh, – the movement of film of a film frame has its own nature, which is not that of a music of a musical note. Polyscreen cinema should be compared not with a chord uh, or harmony or polyphony, because that's what they were saying is that like it's kind of like a melody or like a chord or you could have like these different things that are resonating on different levels. He says, but rather it's like the sound produced by several orchestras playing different pieces of music at the same time. And I feel like that's just a lack of imagination on his part. To, to say that, like, there is no way that a multi-screen experience. Yeah, but you got to look at it from his perspective, yeah. too. Like, I mean, like we like today, I mean, how many times have I played video games and had something else on on a different screen or something like that? If it's just a yeah. background thing, like we're we're coming from a perspective uh, where the world is like, like totally steeped in ADD culture at this point. Yeah. Like, it's like, yeah, I can look at a billion different things at once. I can multitask and do all this stuff at once. So like, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if eventually we get like two screens going at the same time or something yeah. like that. But I do agree with them. Like, I would not be able to focus on six screens. Like, that's ridiculous. And I don't know what you would hope to glean from like pointing out something like that. But yeah, like, to, to <laughs> like me- to showing something like that, that would be kind of ridiculous. Yeah, I don't To me, it feels like... um I can pretty easily like I'm starting to be able to imagine that more and more partially because of like the advent of like 
360 degree cameras and things like that, which are taking like, I mean, that is like having six screens around set around you. Yeah. But you're um, still only look able at like one perspective. Right. So, yeah. And I just, I just think that like, that's an example of a time where like he kind of just dismisses something out of hand that like, I don't know, to me personally, I feel like I'm not convinced by his throwaway argument. Yeah. Um, there are some cool things like, uh, kind of the happenstance of like film that like, like special meaning can arise, uh, yeah. just from things that are captured. Uh, like he talks about, uh, seven samurai. There's a scene where like, uh, a fight is going on between some horsemen and a samurai who's on foot. Um, and the samurai's legs are like covered in mud and stuff like that. Um, and the samurai gets cut down and since it's raining, all of the mud washes away. And he's like, I don't know if this was intentional or not, but it seems like, you know, the washing away becomes like a pure thing. Uh, it's like symbolic that the man is dead. Um, and he's like, you know, that could have just been something that, uh, happened on the day, but because it's captured in time and with this new context, it gives the actual scene more meaning. Uh, it gives this image more power. So I don't know. Cool things like that. How like it might not necessarily have been intentional completely from the director's perspective but uh when it actually ends up doing the final edit it ends up uh getting more meaning yeah i i definitely think he's kind of contradicting himself at times and like struggling with what how exactly to say things i because like in that example i i feel like he's really trying to get at the difference between like symbol and image Mm -hmm. um because he's he's like this is what the image is and it's not necessarily the symbol. It's not necessarily a symbol for anything else. Like he talks about in the beginning of Andre Rublev where the peasant is flying and he said that like it, they intentionally like because it's just this little vignette about this peasant who has always dreamed of flying and tries to fly and he kind of does and there's a lot of excitement and then he falls. Yeah. And he says um, that they didn't want to give him wings. Yeah. They, they want he wanted him to use a air balloon to uh, to fly because they, he wanted to avoid the symbolism of Icarus. Yeah. Uh, like so for him, like symbolism is something that it seems like he's trying to strip out of his movies, not put in. Yeah, but through it, he's also like getting yes. a lot more. Because I would say, like most of Tarkovsky's films are very uh, like metaphor driven, are like very uh, like there's a lot of symbolism in a lot of his films. Like a lot yeah. of it is very it's it's left vague so that the audience member can come forward and like make his own connections though too. Yeah, um, and he talks about this in a lot of his earlier chapters too. But I think that's like kind of what he's getting at is like the struggle is that he wants the audience to feel free to import their meaning and everything. So he has to strip it away from like the cliche things Mm -hmm. that they would normally use to bypass actually thinking. Yeah. Um, So like he, he talked about also where uh, like when making Andre Rublev that they could have shot it to be historically accurate Mm -hmm. and to make it look the way that it did and everything. And he's, and, but he was saying like that wouldn't, that would diminish it in some ways because like we wouldn't be capturing what it was like for them back then. Like if they were to transport in time and come forward, they wouldn't watch our film and say, yep, that's it. Exactly. That's exactly how we felt and everything. Um, It's, it's like trying to do something that you can't do. Um, I don't know. It just, yeah. (laughs) Like, 
I feel like I feel like I un I kind of understand what he's getting at, but I also feel like he's being super monolithic about it, and, he's and he very doesn't vague need to about be. a lot of things too. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Well, because a lot of it, I feel like, is just his perspective. A yeah. lot of it is just like. But I mean, like we're we're kind of entering into his school of thought here too, which yeah. is why I understand. Like, yeah, you're free to muse on whatever you want, man. Like, yeah. like sometimes you go off on tangents, and I'm like, I don't know where this is going, and I hope it comes back around soon. Um, but overall, like he does have a lot of really good points. I think this was definitely my least favorite chapter so far out of the ones that yeah. we've read. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of the things that he said, because he's talking about intentional symbol versus accidental symbol. Yeah. And he basically is, I think the word he used was banal, uh, towards intentional symbols. Mm-hmm. Um, he says, uh, in the final scene of Give Anna a Husband, uh, I don't can't pronounce that, Gachea a Husband, DeSantis puts the his hero and heroine on either side of a metal gate. The gate clearly states, now the couple is split up. They'll never be happy. Contact is impossible. And so a specific individual unique event is turned into something utterly banal because it has been forced to take on a trivial form. The spectator immediately knocks his head against the ceiling of the director's so-called thought. The trouble is that a lot of audiences enjoy such knocks. They make them feel safe. Not only is it exciting, but the idea is clear, and there's no need to strain the brain or eye. There's no need to see anything specific in what is happening. And on that sort of diet, the audience starts to degenerate. Yet similar gates, fences, hedges have been repeated many a time in film and always mean the same thing. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I even in, like, directing class, um, I remember, like, fences and hedges being used in Jaws and, yeah. like, that being, like, oh, you see you see Spielberg's great directing style here? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, actually. Um, so, again, I don't know if I completely agree with this because I think sometimes those, like, uh, the recurring images that are kind of overused in cinema – I mean, sometimes they have a purpose and sometimes they actually do help the scene resonate more with the actual viewer. Um, And I think sometimes even those like, I mean, I can't tell Tarkovsky what to do because obviously he's a lot better at whatever he does than I do. Um, But yeah, I mean, I I, I feel like sometimes those obvious symbols do cause a lot of meaning and uh, like I, I wouldn't call him banal at all. Honestly, but I mean, like if that's I, what he I wants feel like to I kind of understand how how he feels like um, in certain examples. Sure. But I think there's it's an, one of the ex- reasons that I don't find like reference humor sometimes very funny. Uh, reference humor is outdated in a couple of years every single yeah, time. But so. like like that. And um, I don't know. I kind of felt like that with Jaws. Like part of me is like, OK, yeah, that's interesting. There's but also I was like, yeah, or there was just a fence there when they filmed. Yeah. And it wasn't intentional at all. And in which case, I would argue that that is like what he's talking about, where things are more like images than symbols. Like if when it's not intentional, it takes on a power that's even greater than if it is intentional. Yeah. But we as a viewer also don't know what is intentional and what is not intentional yeah. when we first watch it. So I always go into movies with kind of the eye of this was intentional like especially locations for me so like if characters are set on opposite sides of a gate i know that there's supposed to be a rift in between them or something like that so I don't yeah know. but yeah yeah i'm kind of interested and wonder like what his solution to that problem is like if there is no gate like what is it that you want from that scene <laughs> yeah that's not there because a gate is there like yeah I, like is it is it does he feel like the audience is not going to um, 
experience the sense of separation as strong as if there was no gate between them and they had to simply tell from body language and from the performances like i'm not really sure like what he's getting at in that paragraph yeah i don't know yeah i don't i don't know if he thinks like certain images cheapen uh like the symbolism behind things but yeah I guess I I kind of like the way he ends this chapter actually because he just goes I love cin- cinema. There's still a lot I don't know about it though. <laughs> like yeah, yeah I, I know. Just kind of like yeah, no, I love this stuff, but I really yeah, I don't know, man. Like sometimes I just there's a lot about it that just doesn't make a lot of sense. But I think yeah. like any artist who works in his medium enough is going to eventually come to the uh, understanding that they don't know everything about the artwork that they're working with. Yeah, um, and that's a huge part of like you know, moving forward as an artist is realizing that you're not going to be the smartest at whatever you do. You're not going to fully understand it, but being able to, uh, like use your own perspective to craft something new is what makes you special as an artist. too. Or even like, like for me, I know recently I've kind of been going through this like period of self-discovery realizing that, um, realizing some things about my artwork and like stories that I've written and new directions that I want to take them in. Um, where I can't even say I fully understand what I'm trying to do. Yeah. I just know I'm trying to do something. Yeah. And I'm taking stabs at it and I can't completely explain it to anybody else. Like I was trying to explain this scene that I was writing to Katie the other day and she's like, but that's not like this. And I'm like, yeah, it is, but I don't know what I'm trying to say that like, I can't even say, Mm -hmm. um, and I wonder if that's just part of it is that as artists, you constantly there is a, nebu- there is a nebulous quality to what we do when we create something Yeah, that is very hard to put our finger on why this works and this doesn't or why this resonates and this doesn't. Mm. Um, I find that I'm liking the word resonate more for like because I think in the past I've talked a lot about this works and this doesn't and that's not universally true. What I'm really getting at is that – the for emotion most perspectives be, or yeah, whatever. Is that, is that like from my perspective, it's not resonating and not working. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that it's not working from like, like just we talking we about talking. Hook or uh, Dead Poet Society with Virginia mm-hmm. that like, um, like in each one of those discussions, the movie worked far better for one of the two of us. Hook worked better for me. Dead Poet Society, Society works better for you. And I can it guarantee it was because of the perspectives that we had when we were watching them for the first yeah, time too. Yeah. Like you watched Hook when you were a kid. I did not really watch Hook when I was a kid. So yeah, it didn't resonate with me as well. Or like, uh, you know, Dead Poet Society, you resonated more with uh, or you... you. I identified more with the kid characters because yeah. I was a kid when I saw Exactly, it. yeah. So yeah, very, yeah, cool stuff. But <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's uh, is kind of it was a tougher chapter for us to get through and to like, I don't know if I, we feel like he's kind of saying the same thing over and over again. Yeah. And we don't want to keep doing that. <laughs> so we're just going to call it here and we'll be moving on to the next chapter next time. Yes. Uh, yeah. And uh, that's going to pretty much do it for us this week. Uh, special thanks to Virginia Anzengruber uh, for coming on and discussing with us. You can find her podcast by searching for Listening at the Fire uh, pretty much anywhere that you grab your podcasts from. Be sure to check us out on Facebook or Instagram. Like and comment. Share our posts. Uh, definitely, uh, especially comment. Uh, we've been having better and better discussions, I think, on our Facebook uh, lately. So uh, it's been a lot of fun, actually, to hop on Facebook and find out that uh, Shirley or Josh or somebody uh, has 
posted uh, several comments and we get to actually carry on discussions outside of just the podcast. Heck yeah. For hundreds more movie reviews from a spiritual and cinephile perspective, visit truemythmedia.com and we will say farewell, friends. Peace. Also, just a side note, uh, I forgot to mention this on the show, so I'm adding it here, but next week's Nicolas Cage-focused episode is going to be dropping late. It won't be on Friday. It'll be on the following Monday uh, because uh, the weekend is kind of a crazy one. It's my birthday weekend. This week is my anniversary, so... Uh, just scheduling a time to get me, Seth, and Carl down here to talk about those uh, movies was a little bit hairy this time. So uh, it's going to drop like three days late, but uh, you can look forward to a lot of great uh, discussions of some uh, crazy acting from Nicolas Cage and uh, some of his really amazing uh, roles as well. 